All right, we are live and kicking in our favorite Panera. Yeah. One of the hundreds. <laughs> uh, welcome to the Lawn Business Podcast. Everybody out there knows I'm Anthony Verna. With me, John Nevels. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. Nice to be honest. Thank you very much. And look, just just to, to, to get everybody up to speed, you've got local journalism in your blood. Right. <laughs> Who are you writing for right now? So right now I'm doing uh, CatholicPhilly.com is a diocesan website in Philadelphia. I've been doing that since 1982. Basically covering all uh, Catholic um, stories, should be, on Catholic schools, um, personality profiles, features, news stories, sporting events. And then I'm writing for a wonderful website, and I'm not giving it... I'm not saying that just to be nice, but it's, um, it's called PhiladelphiaSportsDigest.com, and it's run by a mother-daughter team. Like every human being on the planet should have bosses like this. They, they just—they're just really, really great people. And that covers in Philadelphia the Philadelphia Catholic League and the Inter-Academic League are, the, are two of the main leagues. So okay. the boys and girls they cover, and there's a tremendous amount of opportunity, you know, for for people who get involved with them because there's so much to do. Sure, I mean I've totally forgotten the Philadelphia high school mm-hmm. athletic sure, league sure, scene sure. in my yeah. in my time. So so. What else needs to be covered then? Like, if, you, if, there's, if you're saying there's a lot of work to do in the local scene, what, what else well, needs to be done? Well, there's a couple different things. It's, it's interesting. Like, the Philadelphia Inquirer no longer really has a high school sports section. That, that still amazes yeah, me. Yeah, I mean, they'll do, let me be clear, they'll do stories, and they have a, you know, a couple of really good writers, but they no longer do things like standings and, and updates and, uh, you know, re- or uh, previews. And they'll do a preview for maybe a, a tournament, but. Back in the day, you would get so much information about what happened the night before, you know, who did what, you know, the, the, the box scores. They don't have that anymore. Sure, um, sure. I remember when I when I was first home from college and and in law school, I was part time at the Bucks County Courier Times, and that's all they had me do was go write mm-hmm. high school sports. Yeah, and and you know, it's interesting because you know, 95% of high school athletes are not going to play in college. <laughs> so mom and dad are going to really like seeing, you know, Bobby Schmidt's name scoring two points in the box score. There's something to be said for that. I'm sure if my kid, you know, had scored two points for St. Joe's Prep, I'd be like, oh, my God, I'd be taking pictures and sending it. So, or his name mentioned somewhere. So um, what you're finding is that a lot of these companies um, are desperately trying to find good strategies to get readers but the problem is the monetary part of it. Sure. So people are not making a whole lot of money doing this. Obviously, from the advertising standpoint, is the most important part of it. But you're, you're seeing these people, you have a lot of people who are pretending to be journalists. And I don't say that meanly, but, you know, they have no training. And they're like, you know what, how hard is it to sit there and, you know, cover a wrestling event? And they'll go up and, you know, say, oh, this one did that, that, with that, with, with no training. Um, which is a little aggravating for people who have done this for, for their whole life. But... Some companies are just taking whatever they can get. But there, there, there still is a bit of a, a, a hole in the market for, peop, for, for people who are invested in high school sports. And let's be honest, there are still plenty of adults mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> who will go visit their alma maters. Sure. And, and watch Present the company soccer included, game. right? For both of us. <laughs> um, it's been a while. <laughs> my my a, school closed, so... Uh, yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while. Um, although although I, do have, I, I do have a client who called me and asked me if I were going to a, a Holy Ghost prep soccer game, and I was like, um, 
Where, where is Holy Ghost? Is that, <laughs> yeah, is that I, yeah. Ben Salem? Still, no. Still in no. Ben Salem? Yeah, good school. Um, but, you know, there still are adults who, who, who go see their, mm-hmm. their high school football team, their high school soccer team, high school basketball yeah. team. So it, it does feel as if there is a market inefficiency and a hole there to, to, to fill up. I think it also comes down to um, a lot of people are not thinking outside the box. Like, back to this Philadelphia Sports Digest, what they do is, you know, they're really big on, on interviews okay. and, and, and uh, face-to-face interviews on camera. And it's really one of the first companies that did that. And a lot of companies kind of fed off of that because people like to see that type of thing. Like, oh, my God, there's Bob talking about the game-winning shot, you know. There's Laura talking about the, the, the loss that and she feels sad about. There's human interest in that. So there, you know, the, the days of being like, I'm going to pump out 15 inches of article, which is a journalism term for, you know, how much space. So 15 inches is like, I don't know, 700 words. Right. You don't have the readership anymore or people interested in reading 700 words. They're like, what, can, what visual, what's the visual that I can see? You need a visual that's going to attract people to your content in, sure. in journalism. I don't care what kind of journalism it is, sports, news, features, whatever. If you don't have that, you're going to lose tremendous amount of possibilities. But I also think that the, in the writing aspect of it, and our society is busy, quote-unquote busy, but they are, I guess, the, excuse me, the strategy of um, using bullets, um, there's 10 things you want to say. If you have a a narrative of a thousand words, most people are just going to stop reading. But if you break that up into 12, you know, 80 word segments, by osmosis almost, they end up reading the thing. But you have to draw them first. You have to draw them in. And it could be a great picture. Um, it could be a, a video. It could be a great highlight. You know, we're constantly tweeting out highlights, and that's really where you see the Twitter hits. I, I think I think the Twitter is a good point. But to me, I also think the video and the pictures are important as well. It... it it really isn't all that different on my blog. On my blog, first off, on my website, the average the average trip for somebody is a minute and a half, and that's tripled from what it was a month ago. Like only in the last month have people started to sit on the website and actually read my blog posts. Right. It's really the strange phenomenon. Yeah. Before that, it, people would bounce and people would bounce. So that has to be the same for you. You have to have enough words to have a story but that hook to keep people in and also the right kind of words to keep the the story alive because you need the right search engine optimization for journalism yeah, you, and especially with journalism really effectively being of the moment rather than long term but you still have to think about it right i mean you, yeah you totally killed that because it, it's the same thing for instance the advertising you know you, you, if you have a big advertising some guy talking about something people are going to zone out get a, get a cup of coffee during the during the watching TV or whatever, but if they have right. a really funny look at the Super Bowl, like they always have these goofy, crazy things, you know, that kind of draw you in. But then, what in, in line with what you're saying, do they have the wherewithal to make sure that the end of this 30 second or one minute commercial, do they understand? Are they are they able to? The, by the way, this is for Sonic and not oh, there was a funny guy on a horse. What sure. was it about? I don't even know what it was about. Well, they lost their audience. What's the point? So it's really about stra- strategizing. And I, and I think it's about recognizing, and, and one last one final, one thing I will say though is, I think it's important for people who are involved with this to ask themselves, what would they, what would inspire them to read, what would inspire them to, to click on a website, and then because they're probably pretty much every man, I mean they're, they're pretty much they understand sure. it, 
or talk to trusted people and then go about it. But it, 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 the bottom line is they can't rest on laurels and they can't get lazy because nothing's going to happen. I think one of the uh, aspects of local journalism that I've learned is that a lot of people still who move away check in on their hometown. So if, if you're looking at a, at a publication like the ones that you write for, what are you looking for to keep reading those stories? So, I mean, like, I'm no, if, just kind of repeat the question. I'm a little confused. Sure, 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 sure. If, if, if you are putting yourself in the position of the reader, what, is, what are you looking for to read in the publications okay. that you write for? So, I am looking for, to be honest with you, a big part of it is what, is, what, are, what are the other people not saying? I'll give you a classic example. Please. Roman Catholic High School just won a state tournament game. This one kid, Justice Williams, scored 27 points. Great kid. Everybody, everybody loves Justice Williams. He's a great interview. Okay. But I've developed a thing where I'm looking around, and I see that this freshman named Will Norman had six points and seven re- and eight rebounds. That's a story. No one else is doing that story. You got to find a story no one else is doing because everybody is doing. You have to think outside the box. But it's only you know a six point stat line. It is, but the, the point is, they, you, how much they win by? They won by six. So you think without that quote-unquote little contribution of six points and eight rebounds, do they win that game? Maybe not. You know without Justice Williams, but the, the point is, it's not like this, this kid played a really good game, but no one really knows about it because people don't report on it. You know, a, a football game is a perfect example. Somebody goes seven, I won an award for an article I wrote 100 years ago. Guy busts 75 yards for a touchdown to win the game in overtime. And, and I forget the kid's name. <laughs> forget the kid's name. But I do remember specifically that my story was on the block that freed him for the 75-yard run. And that was my story because no one else was doing that story. It was the kid that made the block. Without the block, the kid goes three yards, uh, you know, in, in a second and seven. Instead, he goes 75 yards for a touchdown. Nobody even talked to the kid who made this key block in the open field. So my point is that you have to constantly look for something. Well, everybody's going to do that. I have to do something unique. And I think you can find it in some of these websites, unique stories. Don't do what everybody else is doing because it's overkill. I mean, that almost sounds like like a journalism problem, period. Not just like a problem because I'm at, at a niche publication or website. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, trying to, to find the story that others aren't doing. Well, okay. And, 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 no. and, and especially in today's world where, where even the bigger local publications are cash-strapped. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just easy to write the lazy thing. I'll, give, I'll, I'll let you think about that, or I'll let you answer that, and then I'll give you an example. Well, I mean, I think, again, though, I think it has to do with not being lazy. You're, you're absolutely right. For instance, if you do this, my example, if I do a whole thing on Will Norman, basically a few of his friends and his family and he will read that. But so I have to strategically be like, I, I need to recognize what everybody wants to read, which is, you know, which, which, which it's the obvious thing that this kid had 27 points and this is what he did, blah, blah, blah. So by writing it, you, that's, and that's what I mean before, but people think, well, they're, they're, they're journalists and they're writers. Not necessarily, because you have to have strategy. I'm sure you do in law. You can't just go in there and go, well, I'm going to wing it. You're like, how am I going to make this case stand? Or how am I going to, you got to go circumvent all these different areas. And, and at the end of it, if you're good, or if you've had a lot of experience, not only for the people who are going to read or read your stuff because you're recognizing the obvious, but at the same time they're going to say, "Wow, there's a tie-in to this little story," and you have to hope that people like to read little stories. Sure, 
About the little man, I mean. <laughs> I know what you meant. Uh, to, to give you an, the, an example I was thinking yeah. of, in, in Putnam County, New York, the county north of where, of where I live, the uh, district attorney for several years was a man named Adam Levy, son of Judge Judy. And um, the sheriff's office had uh, Adam Levy's trainer arrested. Eventually, it was deemed to be a wrongful arrest. It was uh, deemed that... Um, I know that uh, there was a settlement paid to, to, the, to the trainer. But for a year, all the stories started with Adam Levy, comma, Putnam County District Attorney, comma, son of TV's Judge Judy, mm-hmm. comma, mm-hmm. whose live-in trainer was arrested, comma. And, well, time out. <laughs> His trainer was not living in his house. Mm-hmm. That actually turned out to be paperwork that the sheriff doctored to put Adam Levy's address on the arrest mm-hmm. papers because the, the man was actually living, um, he was actually living illegally in a commercial yeah. <laughs> office. Yeah. Oh my God. But, yes, exactly. So, uh, you know, but, but what was sensational it was, and also what was easy for somebody who had to pump out three stories a day, it was easy to say, Adam Levy, comma, the son of TV show oh, yeah. Judy, comma, whose live-in trainer was arrested, even though one-third of that sentence was wrong. Yeah, and it's a, I mean, and the question is about integrity. Yes. Okay, yes. you know, when I teach a journalism class, one of the first things I always bring up is November 22nd, 1963, and I'll show them Walter Cronkite talking about John F. Kennedy's death. And if you watch that, like, basically they know he's dead. But until they are confirmed literally to the letter. He refuses to really announce that he's dead, even though all his correspondents continue to say, we have word, we have word. He's, well, that's right. not official, that's not official. That time is no longer here. Look at, and then you look at what happened to Princess Diana 25 years ago, and they basically were just winging it. You know, it's, sure. it, and it's always, the, and it is a matter of integrity because you look at these organizations, it's not about, it's not about accuracy, it's about getting, being the first to get it. Um, the question is, do people care about integrity? I don't necessarily know that they do. I mean, maybe it depends on your clientele, but I don't necessarily know that there's a lot of, um, I, don't, I don't think that there is a, uh, a lot of demand for really good journalism. You might get some comments here and there, but I think people just like now, they're so used to kind of bull crap um, that they just like, you know, they just roll their eyes and they move on to something else. Sure. Now, but, but, but like you as an attorney and your, and your firm, I think, I do think, though, if you, and myself, I, mean, I, I write, so my name is out there. So if you yeah. establish yourself in a certain area as being legitimate, I think you'll have a better opportunity for people. Like, you know what, I know this is not going to be nasty. Like, we have a tendency, right. like a real little silly silly thing. Like, in Philadelphia Sports Digest, one of the things we never do is use words like blowout, crushed, annihilated. I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a very good policy. It is, because you're talking about, how, now you want to say, like, the Flyers annihilated, the Islanders, I'm not going to knock yourself out, but these are big, strong men, athletes. These kids in high school don't need sure. to be no. And there's sometimes, for instance, we've had things, some team beat somebody 75 to 19. We simply said a team won. I don't need right. to tell you this score. Now, if that's bad journalism, then find it somewhere else. I, well, I think that's. I think it's a little different when you're in a niche like that because mm-hmm. you understand who your subject is. You also understand then who your your Good. customer is. Good point. Uh, you know, I should say your reader, um, but you know, from a business standpoint, it's no different. So that True. this way, you you have a story that is targeted to your niche. I mean, in a way, it's exactly what, when, when we're doing the business consulting <laughs> uh, 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 side of, of, of um, you know, when I help my business consulting friends, um, you know, what's the niche? 
And in your particular case with journalism, it's what's the niche, and can we build our readership based on the niche? Right. That's a good way to put it. Um, but what is it? What is it about the local journalism scene that keeps you going back for it? Um. Well, I think certainly. Well, living in Philadelphia, there's so much. Sure. I mean, there's, I don't know, 40, 50 schools that you can <laughs> do things on. I mean, I, I was in North Carolina with my daughter the other day, or like a couple weeks ago, actually, and we were talking about the high schools in, in Wilmington, and there's like five high schools in the entire city of Wilmington. It's some real low number. I'm like, oh, my God, I would die here. Like, I couldn't believe it. But there is so, there is so much to do. And, and, and here's – but I think that the, the local part gets into the smaller schools that have no suburban uh, advantage. So schools in the suburbs always have, always have newspapers that write about them. Your city schools, the Roman Catholic, the Hallahans, this is obviously to Philadelphia's, but the small school, the Little Flowers, they don't have anybody writing about them other than themselves. And basically that becomes almost a puff piece because sure. they're, 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 they're saying how great their school is. It's an advertising tool almost, even if it's legit, or at least it's perceived to be an advertising thing. So that's the kind of thing that keeps me going, too, to be like, no one else is really hearing about that stuff. No one's hearing about these great people that do different things. And so... There is, you're, you're exactly right. Like if I if I was in New York and I picked up the newspaper and it was about a, a St. Anthony's, I, I'd probably right. be like, whatever. It doesn't really matter to me. Sure. You know? Sure. But I'll tell you one thing. As a journalist, I would then look at it and be like, what are they doing that's effective? What are they doing that's effective? Why am I reading this thing? What drew me to this thing? And I think you have to, you have to do that. Oh, and one other thing is really important, I think, is to take the opportunity to really, really try to bridge... Uh, bridge um, relationships um, of, of uh, recognizing other people's work. The other day I, I tweeted out uh, this kid, this one guy who wrote a phenomenal piece. He's one of our competitors. Hmm? I tweeted out, phenomenal piece by right. at such and such. On, right. And that's just integrity. That's being like, you know, we're, we don't have the, the only answers. <laughs> but I think if you do that, chances are good things happen. I, I, it's one of those things I see all the time on, on you know, intellectual property lawyer Twitter. Mm. All the time is the, is that our colleagues will certainly praise each other when we have decisions. We will argue about each other. I know I got raked over the coals a couple of times for the Kylie Jenner suit, which we won't be talking about. <laughs> but after it was filed, I had. I had a couple law professors uh, be very critical of, mm-hmm. <laughs> of the complaint. Yeah. So, uh, but but you know the 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 interaction with colleagues I've noticed on Twitter has to be there mm-hmm. in order for your own your own reputation to keep growing. Absolutely, and it's what you tweet out, what you don't tweet out, and, and the willingness to take it off anything public. But I will say one thing about the critical thing you said. What I like about that is. Because some people would say, well, you wrote this story and, you know, 14 people hated it. Well, that means 14 people read it. Yeah. So in your situation, that means your critics who may not have, <laughs> they've studied whatever it is you did. Yes, they did. And, 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 and on Tuesday, they were critical of it. That's more than likely on metaphorically Thursday and you're doing something else, they're more likely to say, oh, by the way, by the way, now that is something I agree with. And I think it's about getting it out there. Sure. You know, it sure. really is. And being and being able to be criticized and not being and not feeling badly about it. No, no, it's like, you know, if someone didn't like something, I remember one person said, well, "Yeah, you're a little my my grandfather-in-law when he met me, my, my wife said, "Hey, pop, this is John Neville from the Catholic Standard and Times, which we used to be before Catholic Philadelphia." Sure. Hey, nice to meet you. You're a little heavy on the adjectives. 
It was the first thing he ever said to me. And I remember thinking, like, I like this guy, you know? <laughs> I like this guy. I was like, yeah, all right, thanks. And, you know, good to see you too there, Pop. <laughs> you, you, know, you know, to think about the criticism on, on the last example that I gave, what was, what was interesting was that I, I said, after I read the criticism, I said, I don't actually disagree. But that doesn't mean that the move that was made in a specific piece of litigation for a specific piece of time was the wrong move. Right. Like sometimes, because law can be sloppy, <laughs> litigation, yeah. and just litigation can be sloppy. Um, and so sometimes you just kind of have to make a move while you say, damn, the consequences. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes you have to tell the client, look, if we do this, here's what's going to happen, and as long as you understand that, oh, yeah. what's going to happen. So, so sometimes, in a way, we're paid to take the criticism away from the client. Yes, yeah, but I love, but I love that openness, and I think that's where the integrity comes from. If they say, you know, Anthony Verna is okay with being critiqued, it doesn't take it personally. I love the whole, Ron, I mean, not to get a politics, I love the whole Ronald Reagan thing that I've read that day. He was like, back and forth, nasty stuff with Democrats. But six o'clock at nine, man, they'd be pouring back some, some, some drinks and, and, and having a good time because it's like, they don't agree with certain things, but they respected each other. Right. You know, you know, one of my, one of my older colleagues um, who's been on this podcast, and, and I would talk about that, that um, for him, Nothing, almost nothing that opposing counsel ever did was personal, was taken personally. He was working, and they were working, and they were working, both working in favor of their clients. Mm -hmm. And they were there to put out an argument. Mm -hmm. And I always say, you know, it doesn't quite feel like that anymore. Mm. It feels it feels a lot nastier yeah. than it used to. Yeah, I think you're right in, about in that. The legal, in the legal world. Well, that... Then, that I mean, I think in general. Now, you would obviously know that more about the about the, the legal thing. And I also wonder: is there a lot of competition among lawyers? Are you trying to get the same clients, or no? I would say that that I would say that there are there certainly is some competition on that. Like, let me let me let me give another example. I sat down with with a potential client, stepped through stepped through the business's case because it was a trademark infringement case. And I sat, sat down with the business owner, we did lunch, and I just stepped through everything because this case was just too important to just talk about on the phone. And, and we sat in a, in a, you know, we sat in a, in a private restaurant, private area. Um, we didn't get hired. And they hired another firm. And eventually the business owner picks up the phone and calls me again. And I, you know, this time I sat down on the phone. And I said, you know, look, after reviewing everything, my opinion from last year hadn't changed. I will tell you that it has been four months since that phone call. And that business has already gone through two other law firms. Uh, interesting. So um, I don't know particularly what promises were made. I don't know particularly what was said, obviously, between this business and other law firms. But I can tell you that when I plan a strategy, I try to stick to 
that particular plan as yeah. best as possible. You yeah. still always have to be flexible, but I try to stick to that. But yeah, for, for firms, you know, in, when you hit certain tiers, you generally are competing for clients of those tiers as well. Like generally, some, you know, a, a, a corporation that's going to hire a big law firm isn't going to hire a small three person firm. You, you know, unless there's something really, really niche, mm. you know, and we, we do have some clients that are big multinational uh, companies, but they're not coming to us for the trademark or patent work. They're coming to us for like the advertising work because mm. it's just really niche. Yeah, and you're talking from a journalism standpoint. There, you know, there will be people if they're doing accounts of a lawsuit that's been filed and they're and they're doing a news story on that. You know, that's another interesting thing for you. Uh, I would think to be interviewed by them, and then the whole concept of. What can you say? What can't you say? And you don't want to. Like, it, it, I'm sure there's some things you would love to say, sure, and you don't say. Of course. But where? But, but my point is, like, maybe the same thing would apply to you. Like, what would you say to a budding journalist who wants to do a news story, for instance, like on a big case, and 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 they want to they, they want to contact you? What are some of the advice, advisory things you would tell them? So so, now, okay, fascinating question because I've been quoted a few times and I always pull my hair out. Afterwards, because so you've had a lot of this. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Says the bald guy across from you. Thank yes. you. <laughs> um, the, what has what has what I've I've tried to do is always step the journalist through because because my areas of law are not um, not not typical for the average person. I should I should say it like that. Um, you know, if it were, a, you know, if I did personal injury or car accidents or medical malpractice, I think a lot of people just inherently understand that better than copyright infringement. <laughs> yeah. You know, why did Led, Led Zeppelin win the case the other day? I've got to go back and read the, the decision from the court because the short answer is I actually don't know mm -hmm. right now off the top of my head. Um, because it's a very complex, highly technical issue, and I have to sit down and go through and and, and go through the case and reread it, uh, or read it <laughs> once. Um, so, so, but there are those those particular problems, and sometimes I will say, okay, okay, let's start. Here's let me let me first define. Here's what a copyright is. Here's what a trademark is. Here's what a patent is. So that this way, mm. this way, I can get the journalist going because that's. Half the problem with most of the time, most of the stories I'm quoted in is that there's something there that's incorrect. I, I have seen stories about a copyright of a color, and it's like, no, 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 that's not how it works. That's not yeah. No, 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 I stepped through it with you, and that's not how it works. I was recently um, interviewed for an article on the um, on the Harry and Meghan um, Sussex royal trademark. Okay. And the fact that the Queen's not going to give her permission. And basically, my answer for every question was, "We're not British. No. <laughs> I no, don't not. care. I don't care. No, right. You're right. I don't about care. That. I don't let, care. Let, let, let the British worry about that. Right. Like if they wanted to come to the U.S. and file the trademark application in the U.S., they're free to. You, you, you yeah, know. sure. But you said something that's really interesting because uh, you said that you want to make sure that the people who are quoting you know know what they're talking about too. Yes. But one thing I would say to journalists, and this was when I was when I was growing up as a, you know as a young journalist, it was always said, you know, you don't have to check, you know, write your thing, don't worry about, you know, people can't dictate to you what to write sure. and so forth. However, I would say to any journalist, do not be afraid. In fact, I would advocate every once in a blue moon, if any confusion, go, you know, 
go back to your source and say, listen, can I send you something? Because I'm going to say it this way. Tell me if this is accurate. Sure. There's nothing wrong with that. And some people think it's a journalistic thing where, well, you shouldn't have to do that. Well, the bottom line is you want to get this thing right. It's not about it's not about anything else about getting it right. And, um, you know, so it, it's about getting it right. So if a person, and I think that establishes too, you be like, by the way, this, you know, some colleague of your calls, did you ever hear this, you know, Joe Schmidt? You're like, yeah, actually, he's a good guy. I would trust him because he really wants to make it right. right. There's nothing worse, I'm sure, for your professor than someone misquotes you or, or, or says something that, yes. you know, or implies something of and takes, takes the context out. So on that note, sir, we are going to roll Alrighty. with the Paul Simon in the background. Katrina, our editor, I love you. Thank you for uh, putting up with the sound quality. <laughs> exactly. And thanks for listening to the Law & Business Podcast. Make sure you leave a review if you're listening on your Apple device. See you next time. There it is. <laughs>